0: I wish I could get Reagan to, when it's my time to do the announcements at Rice Road, I wish Reagan could do that. I wish I had that talent. What a great introduction. And I am glad to be here. Uh, We were surprised I shouldn't have because I've heard other preachers when I'd come to meetings here talk about the gift basket. And that was such a nice touch for this congregation. Also the, the fact that Randy and and uh, Brenda and Roberta gave me a Starbucks gift card for $20. I will use that this week. So it's, it's a great thing to be here. And as Reagan noted, uh, he assigned me the topic for the class. It's on the book of Micah. If you will turn there, we're going to begin with Micah 1-1. We'll have a little bit of an introduction to Micah. And we'll try to make this book... Practical, which is going to be pretty easy because it's a very practical book and it kind of reminds us of our, our nation that we live in now. What we find about Micah is that he, was, he, he wrote this book uh, primarily during the time in Judah from 735 to 700 B.C. He lived in Morsheth Gath, a village on the border between Judah and Philistia, And interestingly enough, it's 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He was a simple country man who fearlessly preached the words of the Lord. And that gives us all hope of those of us that grew up in small towns. Here you have this man was called by God, a country man, who had a desire to preach and teach God's Word. And he prophesied during the reigns of three kings of Judah, One of them was Jotham from 748 to 732 B.C. And he was personally a good king but failed in instituting any widespread reforms. And and you see that often in in regard to the kings of Judah. You'd have a good king, good king, good king, bad king, and then you'd have bad king and then good king, and that's how it ended up in Judah. And that's why Judah lasted longer than uh, the northern kingdom of Israel because we know the northern kingdom of, Ju- of, of Israel went down in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And then you had Ahaz between 732 to 716 B.C., and he was a wicked king. And then one of the greatest kings of all of Judah's history was Hezekiah. And his reign was from 716 to 687 B.C. So Micah begins his prophesying during a period of some prosperity, concluding during the reign of the good king Hezekiah. I think sometimes we forget that when Israel and ultimately Judah went down, uh, Israel to the Assyrians and ultimately Judah with the Babylonians the ultimate uh, deportation 586 BC it was a time of prosperity and sometimes people they get uh, just enamored by prosperity and think well this nation's going to last forever and we always forget that no nation has lasted forever. Even the Roman Empire, which was probably the longest tenure of any nation, it was prophesied they would fall, and they did fall. And they fell because of their wickedness and their ungodliness and their lack of, of sympathy and compassion for the people of the world and the people around them. So both the northern and southern kingdoms had all this commercial success. And this happened during the time of this prophet Micah. And it was also a period of fear and social corruption. And during this time, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken into Assyrian captivity. And the southern kingdom of Judah is also invaded by Assyria. And they destroyed many cities, and they lay siege to Jerusalem. But keep in mind, because of the goodness and the, the compassion that Hezekiah had toward his people and his, his godly attitude toward God, they were spared destruction and delivered by God And because of this great king, Hezekiah. And also because of the plain and fearless preaching of Isaiah and Micah. And that also reminds us as preachers of the gospel. We need to be plain. We need to be fearless. We need to be courageous. We need to be kind. We need to be loving. And we should always consider ourselves in regard to our attitude of disposition of heart and mind. Are we what we ought to be? Are we letting our light shine? Are we trying to reach people with the gospel, setting the example as far as our families are concerned? Do we have the Lord first in our life as gospel preachers? Are we trying to do our part and trying to show compassion to people of the world? Are we going forth and letting people know that when they look at us that we are Christians, that we're trying to serve the Lord? Jeremiah described this time in Jeremiah 26, 16 through 19, this time of Hezekiah and Hezekiah's attitude. He described him having a good heart and responding to the message of Micah. And that was not always the case as we read through the king's. Many just rejected the prophets. They wanted their own prophets because they wanted to hear smooth things. They wanted to hear things that were not true. And here you have these false prophets that had some pretense of inspiration. Said, yes, I'm inspired of God. And then they would preach false things. But you have this great leadership in Hezekiah. He's he's great in reference to being godly. And bringing forth all these reforms in Judah. But the sad thing is that the people coveted wealth. And they robbed the poor. They were dishonest in business. And even cast women out of their rightful possessions. Does that sound familiar to you? Of how our world is? How people do not have compassion and love for other people. It can never be that way for the children of God. We have to be compassionate toward the people of the world. We need to look out and see people that have precious souls. And we need to do our part. That's where the rubber meets the road. We say that we can help the people of the world as individuals. We need to do it. If we see someone in need in the world, we need to do our part. We tell, the, tell people that the, the church cannot take out funds to, to give money to people in the world. And that's true. That's biblical. That's what the Word of God says. And then we say we can do this as individuals, then we need to do it. These people did not have a disposition to even help their own people. And then you have the false prophets who tried to control the people. These priests were available for hire. The judges would judge for bribes, and they judge in favor of people because of money. So Micah paints a picture spiritually of a people who worship God superficially. And Hezekiah forces reforms. But that's the problem. When leaders have to force the the reforms with the power of the throne, then a lot of times the people do it because of fear and not because they've been been brought to the very foot of God Almighty. So in the days of Josiah, we know, this was two generations after Hezekiah, Judah did not turn to God with her whole heart, but in pretense. So God has a legitimate charge against Judah. And Micah follows a pattern of of five themes. Revelation and rebellion, and then judgment, redemption, and then consummation. And that's all brought forth in Micah. And what we find is Micah has a clear presentation of the messianic hope. And is among the most outstanding found in the prophets. He also sees the mountain of Jehovah's house as above all other powers and kingdoms. He beholds Jehovah in his righteousness, ruling and judging among the nations. But this would be accomplished through a ruler born in Bethlehem who would be co eternal with Jehovah. And the enemies would be beaten down. And in in contrast, the Messianic kingdom would shine among all the nations of the earth. This picture is graphic. It's it's glorious. And it's all in this book. It's a powerful book. In chapter 1, Micah warns the people that God will use this foreign nation of Assyria to make Samaria a heap of ruins. Also, the wound to Judah is incurable, and she will be judged. And and that reminds us the fact that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And when God says a nation will fall, it will fall. And we remember from Habakkuk the fact that, remember his cry to God is, why are you not doing something about this wicked Judah? And he says, well, I'm going to punish them, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. And then you remember the cry of Habakkuk is, why are you using a more wicked nation to destroy Judah? And you remember God's answer? I'm going to destroy them too. But then what was the conclusion of the matter in regard to this discussion between God and Habakkuk? That the just shall live by their faithfulness. And think about how many times that's quoted in the New Testament. That the just shall live by their faithfulness. And that has not changed. We will still live by our faithfulness to Christ Jesus. And every motivation in life, every direction we go, every decision we make, every daily activity we're involved in is going to be based on our faith in Christ Jesus. Our love for the Lord, our desire to be pleasing in His sight. In chapter 2, Judah will be judged because of its arrogance and corruption. She is guilty of forbidding the true prophets to prophesy. got ahead of myself. In chapter 3, the leaders and false prophets are condemned forsaking justice. And goodness while loving evil. That sounds very familiar to me. As far as our nation is concerned, have we forsaken justice and goodness while loving evil? They have mistreated the people without mercy. And without mercy, destruction will come to them. And the difference between the false prophets and Micah was that a false prophet derived his right and power from his own will and desires of the people. And that's what happens in our religious world. How are they able to speak all this false teaching and false doctrine in this religious world in which we live? Because the people desire it so. The people want to hear these things that are not true instead of the true word of God. But keep in mind that Micah derives his authority to speak for God from God. And then in chapter 4, you have this messianic prophecy of the coming of the new age with Jesus as the spiritual ruler. So in Micah chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 5 to emphasize my point. It says, Now it shall come to pass, this is verse 1, in the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now look at verse 5. For all people walk, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Now we know that the last days will be a, a new era with a new spiritual leader. Jesus Christ. And this great mountain of the Lord, we know it's his kingdom or his rule or reign. And we know that the outward manifestation of that rule or reign of God or the kingdom of God is the church or the saved. And this will be the thing that is permanently established. It will never be destroyed. Daniel talked about it in Daniel 2 and also in Daniel 7. And And we know Jesus declared that repentance and remission of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's the fulfillment of that prophecy. And think about all the prophecies that were made about Jesus. They were all fulfilled when he was living on the earth. His name will be proclaimed to all nations. And that is in Luke chapter 24 and verse 47, and then reiterated in Acts chapter 2. So we see that in the Messianic age, the new covenant with spiritual Israel will be based on the power of the gospel, appealing to the hearts and minds or the intellect of the people. And that hasn't changed. We still have to appeal to people's intellect. As many of you know, I was a principal for several years and a superintendent for many years. And sometimes a a raving parent would, uh, would just burst into my office. And then I'd let them rave and scream a little bit. And then they'd look at me and say, do you have anything to say about that when I'd said nothing? And I said, well this conversation is not going to continue until we can have it in a rational manner. It has to be an intellectual conversation because we're we're going to get nowhere with how you're speaking right now. And they said, well, you're not going to talk with me? I said, no, I'm not, until it can be a rational conversation. And he said, well, I'm not leaving. I said, well, that's fine if it's not a rational conversation i will leave you cannot reach anyone with the gospel of our lord jesus christ if it's not a rational intellectual conversation if people are all are so emotional that they cannot cannot reason nothing nothing will be accomplished Now, a lot of times I let people just purge, 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 and it just wears me out. Purge, purge, purge. But then at some point, I'm not going to talk to them and have a dialogue unless it's rational. We as brethren need to continue to have rational discussions. About the Word of God. Now let's read verses 6 and 7. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. So you see, if the spiritual lame, the outcast and afflicted will come to Christ in humble obedience, that gives us hope in this life that people from whatever situation, whatever sin that has been committed, they can come to the Lord and have all their sins washed away. Thanks be to God that that that's the case. And they will be part of this spiritual remnant in a strong spiritual nation as Christ is the ruler. We should be so thankful for that. And then in the latter part of this chapter, the the kings, Micah makes it very clear that the kings of the nations will not save them. Judah took so, so much pride in the temple. Look at the temple. How could God's not going to destroy us? Because it's, look at the temple, the temple's still there. But what had happened? They had desecrated everything that was righteous and holy and they felt like that they could hang on to the temple. And what all the prophets made clear is that it will fall too, because I no longer dwell there. And that's the very thing that happened. It was, it was broken down to ruins because of their ungodliness. And in America, we cannot be so arrogant to think that it will not happen here. Righteousness exalts a nation. The way that the devil is bound is through righteousness. And it starts with us. That we have to be what we, have to, what we need to be. In service to the Lord. And then Micah said wise counselors will not save you. The walled city of Jerusalem will not save you. And then the people. He said you are going to go into captivity to Babylon. But then he gives them hope and redemption. That from God they will return to Jerusalem. So God will destroy also the heathen nations of Assyria and Babylon, and he will give his people the instruments to pulverize their enemies. And keep in mind that the instruments are not carnal. They're spiritual in nature. And Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophets used these spiritual weapons when they prayed to God, when Assyria surrounded Judah. And what did God do in answer to that prayer? He killed 185,000 of the Assyrians. And sometimes we forget we have the same power of prayer available to us. We also have faith in Christ Jesus that he will deliver us of our enemies. We have the power to say no to the devil. We have the power to be able to withstand the temptations of the devil. But it's only in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 5, let's pick up at verse 2, and we'll read through verse 5. Micah says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the earth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. When the Syrians come into the land, and when he treads in their palaces, then we will... Raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. So notice how the ruler of the new Zion will be born in Jerusalem and give victory to spiritual Israel. Jesus, the eternal God, will be the ruler and king. And the woman in travail who gives birth to the faithful remnant who would go. Th- through the Babylonian captivity before the ruler would come, she is the remnant of the spiritually faithful through whom the Christ came. And as the great shepherd, Jesus will supply all our spiritual needs and give us spiritual tranquility. His greatness will be known all over the world. When the enemies invade spiritual Israel, God will help us overcome with the spiritual weapons of prayer and faith and hope and love. And by our faith in Christ Jesus and our godly lives, we will constantly manifest great influence and strength among the people of the world. God will make us conquerors over our enemies. God's people will be like a lion, and no one, including Satan and his angels, can stop the power and victory of God's people. Do we believe that? Now, let's pick up at verse 10. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of the land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorcerers from your land and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and in your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities and I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. So notice how in the Messianic kingdom... There will be no place for the relics of paganism. Just think about it a moment. Why did Israel always go down? Why were they punished so often? Why during the time of of the judges, did they, they were faithful for a while and then they had to be punished by God? It, It seemed to always be because of idolatry. And he says there's no place in the kingdom of God for p- pagan relics. Vengeance and wrath would be executed upon the nation who reject the messianic message and refuse to hearken to him and his truth, to submit to him. And then in chapter 6, we'll, we'll, we'll note that the Lord's people truly have three problems. There's a failure to remember the righteous acts of God. There's a lack of heart in worship. And there's a distorted view of God. We're thinking, well, sometimes that can be a problem today. Yes, it was a problem then. And it is a problem today if we let it be a problem. But let's pick up reading it. Starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 3. He says, hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O ye mountains of the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people. And he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. So what do we see? God has an indictment against his people. But notice how he wants them to plead their case. And God has constantly delivered his people from their enemies and is repaid again by what? Continuous ungodliness and idolatry. He he delivered them from the Egyptians' slavery with spiritual leaders to guide them. He turned would-be curses into blessings. But how did they react? By ungodliness. And then in verse six through eight, notice: "And what shall I come? What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the High God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man." What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? This can apply to all time. What does he require of us? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So they say... And we have to be careful about this. And I've been been preaching over 40 years, and I've heard this phraseology is almost exactly like this. How much do I have to do, God? You have to do it all. We have to give all, we have to live all. He has to be first. It's not a hobby. It's a life. It's our lives. Some of us, we've been in the world. That's the world. That's worldly. We're now out of the world. It's spiritual. We have to give the Lord all we have. Every ability. We have to give Him him all of it. If we want to go to heaven. Now, are we saved by the grace of God? Absolutely. But what does he want from us? He wants complete obedience and service. He wants us to serve people. He wants us to serve our family, not be selfish as far as leaders are concerned, but serve. I can't tell you how many times people that I had to mentor in the superintendency, they said, well, I finally made it. I said, yes, you You have. He said, now I can run an organization. I said, get that out of your mind. You're not going to run an organization. You're going to serve an organization. You're going to serve the children. You're going to serve the teachers. You're going to serve the parents. You're going to serve everyone. You're going to come up to teachers and ask them, how can I help you? How can I be a benefit? It's the same way in our spiritual service. How can I help you? How can I benefit you? What can I do to make you and me better people? And then here's the response the people had. Can we bribe God into being okay with us? To them, it was a business transaction. They are willing to do a lot, but not what God desires. They are willing to give something, but not everything. Not their hearts. And these questions, they indicate a willingness to do anything except what Jehovah required. So what is required? And keep in mind, this is one of the most all-encompassing statements found in the prophets. Micah takes the foundational teachings of Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah and combines them into one statement. Amos emphasizes the need for justice and righteousness. Hosea's theme is God's loving kindness and mercy on his people despite their disobedience. And Isaiah pleads with the people to have a right relationship with God. By humbling themselves to his will. This passage is not saying that sacrifice is wrong. In fact, sacrifice was required then as it is now in a spiritual way. This message is that sacrifice alone is not enough. It must be from the heart and mind. We have to do justly. You see, justice is an application of what is right according to the law of God. We have to do that. It is also righteousness, acting in the right way toward God and man according to the divine standard of his word. And then he said, love mercy. And that's to love loving kindness, to be compassionate toward men. This strikes a balance. Justice and mercy are not at odds with one another, but are the two sides of the same coin. Okay, I got a bell. How much time do I have left? Five minutes? Woo, I got to pick up. And we should be like God, showing justice and mercy and love in our lives. God is merciful, but who obtains His mercy? Those who are submissive to His will. And then we walk humbly with our God. We have a close relationship with God by living our lives in hum- humble submission to His will. But be warned, if we, d- we are disobedient to His will, we will receive His justice. And then in verses 9 through 16, God in this section presents His case against His people. If the people are wise, they will fear God and heed His warnings. If the people act wickedly toward their brethren with oppression, injustices, deceptions, and lies, they will be punished with sickness, financial ruin, and ultimately captivity. And then in chapter 7, we'll read verses 1 through 3 and 5 and 6. Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who gleaned, Vintage grapes, there is no cluster to eat. Of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires, the faithful man has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. That they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. Now notice verse 5. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in the bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter re- rises against mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And man's enemies are the men of his own household. Wow, what a charge. Micah makes the accusation of their sins. There is no godly (coughs) or upright person in the land. The people are full of evil. Neighbors and friends are not trustworthy. Sons treat fathers contemptuously. Daughters rise up against their mothers. Daughters-in-law rise up against their mothers-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Verse 7, Therefore I look to the Lord. I will wait for the Lord The God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. So, notice how Mike and all the faithful, what do they do? They put their faith in the Lord. They say, God is our salvation and will hear our prayers. God is the, our guiding light. God will forgive us of our sins if we confess and repent of them. God will bring vengeance upon our enemies. God will bring salvation to all men. God's kingdom will include people from all nations. God will judge the wicked. Okay, I got Reagan's one minute then, right? Okay. Verses 14 and 15. The sh- Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage. You dwell solidarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. So in response to the wonderful promises of God that there would be a glorious return to new Zion, a prayer goes up from God from the heart of his penitent remnant. Jesus will feed his people and require them to live apart from the world. God's people will feed on his word and be separated from the world as if they were they lived in the fruitful pasture lands of Bashan and Gilead east of the Jordan. And then there will be miracles that will come forth that include the miracles of Jesus and his apostles. Nations will be in awe of this, in awe of God's power and his gospel and come to him in humble repentance. Thanks for your kind attention.